This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are, of course, broadcasting from the Triple R studios on stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and on tonight's show, I'm catching up with some of the filmmakers and writers between uh, behind two of the international features playing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. I'll be speaking with director and co-writer uh, Lola Kiveron and actor and co-writer Antonia Buresi from the high-octane motorbike stunt film Rodeo. And later, I catch up with director and co-writer Rick Chanoski about his film Warm Blood, about a runaway trying to reconnect with her father in the 19th. 80s California. But before we get into that, I have been flooded with requests for more MIF and MIF play recommendations. So to help me with this enormous task, I'm joined now by film reviewer and MIF enthusiast plus <laughs> host of the International Pop Underground, uh, Anthony Carew. Welcome to Primal. Hello. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I don't know if I would <laughs> jibe with the uh, description enthusiast. It's more like Your MIF, Twitter. MIF psychotic. <laughs> I think it feels more like a, a, like a weird obsession of just how many things you can possibly watch. Yeah. I think it taps back to some childhood desire to for like completion, trying to complete the set. But that said, I try and watch 100 films from Myth, which to most people sounds insane. But it is insane. There's 260 feature films, so I'm, it's not even half. Yeah, I felt like outrageous with my 30 films and that's with a full, you know, for full-time work, it's really hard to fit it in. But I, yeah, there is a bit of a weird... Weird, like collect them all vibe isn't there the FOMO <laughs> is wild let's see if we can stoke some more FOMO yeah. in people right now by telling them about amazing films that they may or may not be able yeah. to actually go hit, and us, watch. hit us up well um I thought maybe I'd just start out by talking I mean this has been uh duly praised but uh Goran Stalevsky's Of an Age Myth's yes. opening night film um Myth never starts out very well it's usually kind of a bad opening night film and there's a weird mm, vibe in the air. There and is. This year was like the first time back in cinemas in three years and the joy in the air was just amplified mm. by this incredibly uh, smart and beautiful artistic film uh, that features many references to Watsonia High School, you know, like a Hursty <laughs> line represent. Uh, I felt like that just got the festival off to such a... Uh, uh, a glorious start. And it really announced Goran Stalevsky as like this major Australian voice because he has uh, his debut feature, which came before Of An Age, You Won't Be Alone, which is also showing in MIF, this, uh, you know, Serbian uh, kind of witchcraft folkloric horror movie. Very different in spirit to this uh, pained kind of queer uh, romance that mm. wasn't, you know, mm. of, of an age. Beautiful, beautiful performance as well. I thought the um, the older, I forgot the actor's name. Um, sure. Yeah, he was so charming on screen. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it also made me think lots of people, I've had this conversation so many times in my life, you must have as well, where people are like, will say to us as if we have the answers, what's wrong with Australian cinema? Why can't we make good films? And I just, I have this feeling like with Of An Age and You Won't Be Alone, with uh, Blaze, the uh, the Catherine Del Barton film, uh, the new Amiel Corton-Wilson documentary, Man on Earth, which is incredible. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you can be like, this is, this is a pretty yeah, good crop of here. Australian films. <laughs> Precisely. 
Um, what else can I recommend? Well, Lynch Oz is the definitive myth event for cinephiles. It's a movie by uh, Alexandre O'Philippe, who previously made Memory, The Origins of Alien, and 7852, which is a documentary about the shower scene in Psycho. This is about David Lynch's obsession with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, it brought me just pure joy watching it. He invites uh, other filmmakers along, including Rodney Asher, who made one of the definitive works of cinema film criticism of this century, uh, Room 237, about Kubrick's The, uh, the Shining. Um, it's just a lot of people sitting around talking about David Lynch movies and The Wizard of Oz <laughs> and the connections between and kind of cinema as this other grander mythical thing. I watched it a few weeks ago before the festival started and I've just been thinking about it a lot since. There's a great bit where John Waters, who's featured and talks about uh, how him and uh, David Lynch's careers have sort of intersected. Mm. He talks about how they were both obsessed with uh, puppets uh, when they were growing up. It kind of makes sense to me. John Waters say, and he, John Waters has the great line where he says, well, then you grow up and you become a director and then the actors just become your puppets. <laughs> and then I was just listening to an interview with Jordan Peele uh, recently and he was also into puppets when he was young. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that idea. Yeah. I've um, heard of actors described as cows before, so puppets is definitely a step up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lynch Oz, pure joy if you're a cinephile. Uh, a couple of more like genre films that I thought were really amazing. Uh, one of them is called uh, Watcher. It's a debut film by a director named Chloe Okuno. It's set in Bucharest. It's about an American woman played by Micah Munro who's gone there following her very handsome boyfriend, Carl Glusman. He's working and she's just kind of hanging out. And she becomes obsessed with the idea that someone in the apartment block opposite is just watching her. I know this one, yeah. And it is a paranoia thriller that Mm. just plays on this idea of, is she being watched? You know, what does that mean? If so, like, is she being followed? And it is this really meticulous and really disciplined riff on genre. Like, there's no easy scares. There's just this mounting tension and you really inhabit the central character's perspective. So you're with her when she feels like it's all in her mind, but also when it's clear that something is going on only for her to be doubted by, you know, all Mm. the various men, the patriarchy that surround her. (laughs) Can relate. Yeah, yeah. So Watcher is really incredible. And then another film, uh, Emily the Criminal. It's an American crime film by John Patton Ford, another debutante director. It stars Aubrey Plaza as the titular character. It's a very uh, down and out kind of almost social realist riff on real entry level crime set amongst the strip malls of Los Angeles. It has this great propulsive energy. I just uh, saw this quote where Aubrey Plaza says that they were inspired by uh, Good Time, the Safdie Brothers movie, and the films of uh, Jacques Odiar, like the beat my heart skipped. Um, So if you like those kind of like artful riffs on crime films, uh, it's great. And also the main character is the, you know, unlikable female protagonist, which has been sadly a, 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 a rare occurrence in cinema mm. compared to their male counterparts. And this film wears it well. Um, one other recommendation for an in-cinema film is this incredible Belgian film called Playground. Um, it's set entirely within the walls of a schoolyard. It's about a girl who's starting her first year of school. Uh, on her first day, there's kind of a bullying incident involving her and her older brother. And then the film just... It stretches out over a period of weeks, but it never it never leaves school. You don't get to go mm-hmm. home with the children. You don't get to step outside and live this other life. And it becomes about the all-consuming and really debilitating psychology of, I guess, you know, playground politics, of bullying, of the, the threat of violence and, you know, the social hierarchies that exist within this. And... It's a really another really affecting work that uh, gets you to inhabit the perspective of this, you know, pint-sized protagonist. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that was called Playground? That was called Playground. Okay. Uh, speaking of play, uh, <laughs> Myth Play started the what other way. What a segue. Way. <laughs> I'm a radio professional. You really are. Um, Myth Play has started, which is the play at home version. It actually stretches on for a week after the in-cinema version yeah. is finished. So yeah. it goes till the 28th. Um, there's many things to recommend within. A couple of uh, great Australian documentaries, uh, Firefront, the new film by Eddie Martin, which is a big change of pace for very, him. Very, very keen to see this. Um, it's about the uh, the 2019 bushfires. Um, it's a pretty incredible work of, I guess, footage assembly. Mm. Um, and it's great to see – well, it's not great to see Scott Morrison on screen, but it's great to see him <laughs> as this figure of the past. Yeah, you know? that's a huge relief. <laughs> uh, and Franklin, uh, the Casimir Burgess film about a young activist re- retracing uh, his father's 40-year previous journey down the Franklin River during the heights of the protests against the dam there. That's a really affecting piece of cinema about the birth of the um, you know ecological movement uh, mm. in Australia. Uh, another great documentary in Myth Play is Navalny, which yes. I know that you've seen. Uh, yeah, I saw that in cinema. Loved it. About the, uh, I guess, attempted assassination on the, the titular Russian politician and then it hangs out with him, you know, post post attempt on his life <laughs> uh, and there's that yeah. incredible moment in the middle which you can't really spoil but it just feels like you're watching a thriller unfold in oh, real time absolutely. when they're on the phone <laughs> um so yeah. that's amazing and uh what well, a couple of dramas uh, in myth play that are really impressive like mass the much acclaimed american film about the years later aftermath of a school shooting it's really taking the pulse of that nation's horrors there's a great film from chad called uh, Longi, The Sacred Bonds, which is about a mother trying to get an abortion for her daughter in a country where it's, you know, completely illegal and, and you know, considered very immoral. And there's two other great uh, films representing completely different sides of Africa to, I guess, what we would normally see. Uh, a documentary from the Central African Republic called We Students, where the filmmaker and some of his friends, they're just people at university, they're kind of chronicling their own lives. At first, it seems like it's going to be about... I don't know, student activism or, or sticking it to the establishment, but it just sort of unfolds in unexpected ways like life itself. The friends kind of like drift apart. People have dramas and what have you. Uh, it's only the second film, I believe, ever to come out of the Central African Republic. So it's just an amazing real slice of life look at mm. uh, life in this country. And then the other film is uh, Neptune Frost, which is like shot and set in Rwanda, uh, co-directed, co-written by Saul Williams, who some Triple R listeners may know as a musician and poet as well as actor. Um, it's kind of fused, fuses African myth and sort of digital detritus in this portrait of uh, what it means to exist in the contemporary world, uh, you know, the remnants of, of colonisation, um, you know, the, the African place uh, in the global pecking order. But it's also very strange. It's a musical. It's wildly colourful and ridiculous. Um, and it's something that people can watch in their house if they're more into streaming than uh, going in person into the city. <laughs> yeah, and it's worth noting that although, uh, like you said, the MIF itself finishes up in Melbourne theatres on the 21st of August, MIF play is going to continue on to the 28th of August, so plenty of re- recommendations there. You can, of course, find the full program for both MIF and MIF play online at mif.com.au and play.mif.com.au. Anthony, that was wonderful. I've got. <laughs> I hope I monologued and... <laughs> quickly enough. <laughs> you monologued perfectly. Okay, sweet. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Here in Melbourne, we're now 12 days into the Melbourne International Film Festival and one of the standout films for me this year has been Rodeo, an intense, high-octane film about a female motorcyclist navigating the underground motocross stunt rodeo scene in the northern outskirts of Paris. It is my great pleasure to have here in the studio the director and co-writer of Rodeo, Lola.
Lola Kivero and her co-writer and actor, Antonia Baresi. Welcome to Primal Screen, Lola and Antonia. Thank, Thank you. you. So Rodeo tells the story of Julia, a young woman passionate about motorcycling. She's, she's sort of something of a drifter and scams sellers to acquire a bike to ride. But more than anything, she wants to do stunts like the men in the underground motocross stunt rodeo scene. Lola, you spent a considerable amount of time with real suburban bikers from this community in preparation for the film. How did you actually first come across this community? Um, it was really a long journey. This um, the, the, the writing process was really, really long. I began to be interested to this uh, world, uh, special universe, with those writers uh, seven years ago. Um, I, I read an article in, on Vice, the website Vice, with a lot of photographies, um, and, uh, and I discovered this special world uh, with this text, really focused on their habits, their uh, lifestyle, um, and, and the, the article, um, a way to, to discover the, the reality of the, the community. And um, it, I recognized this in a way something that I that I noticed when I was uh, when I lived in the suburbs of Paris uh, in my childhood. I I could so I could see uh, riders um, in front of my building. So I recognized something that I knew, and so I began to be really interested in this um, subject. And I um, shot at first uh, a short film called uh, Dreaming of Baltimore. That's the English title. And I did um, two other projects with them. So uh, during seven years, I never gave up the, this subject and this uh, universe um, because their passion uh, of riding uh, motorcycles, being together, uh, talking about a lot about uh, their passion. It's something really contagious, you know. It's like, uh, yes, and, and I be, began to be really passionate as well. Um, and um, I'm not riding uh, motorcycles, but I can, I could feel strongly um, their passion and uh, the adrenaline addict. Um, and I began to be really addicted as well. Yeah. Um, so it was really simple for me, not simple, but really accurate for me to um, to write this uh, feature, um, taking taking a lot of time to do it because I wanted uh, the film to be really close to them, to the practice, um, to the lifestyle, um, with the this technical. Um, um, lifestyle, you know, um, they 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 have uh, their own vocabulary, their own uh, way to to see the world, um, their own point of view, uh, political in a political way, but also in a poetic way mm. to express things. So I was really trapped into this <laughs> world, you know, and. Mm. Um, um, but the the film, the future film, Rodeo, is really focused on fiction as well. It's a half. Um, there 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 is um, a really strong documentary approach, 
um, because I wanted the film to be really close to them and the, their soul, mm -hmm. the soul of the uh, of the community, the writers' community. But at the at the same time, um, I wrote a, a script really um, built with a lot of fiction codes, um, and I wanted the film also to be really um, in a epic. Um, yes, um, like. Re it's re written like uh, epic mythology, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, there are some parts really influenced by Western movies, action movies, um, because there there are a lot of uh, stunt sequences. Mm. Um, but yes, um, and and you you have this um, the cinemascope is also. Um, um, Yes, it's a format. Format, you know, mm -hmm. you know, format. For, format uh, that that it's really used in Western uh, movies. Mm -hmm. So, and also the grain. There, there, there is a lot of grain in the image. Um, the colors are really bright, but you have also a lot of contrast. So yes, the aesthetic is really. Uh, it's not a documentary. It's really focused on the fiction and the cinematic uh, impression. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a a immersive film yes. um, and you can feel you have emotions uh, because of the story, because of the female character, but also because it's a sensitive uh, movie because um, of the images and um, and the sounds the sounds uh, mm. are really yes, you can feel a lot of uh, things with the sound Absolutely. I love that you touched upon the poeticism <clears throat> of, of motocross and the, the stunts because that's something I definitely want to explore with you some more. And it was a real delight being able to see this film on IMAX screen. Mm. Uh, there was something very thrilling about that and I think that your passion for that scene definitely translates onto the screen. Mm. Lola, this is your debut feature film and aside from Antonia, all of the other cast members are not actually actors. I was really struck by the authenticity of the interactions between characters, which is, of course, owing to the performances they deliver. Did you have any concerns in using non-actors? And, and For me, the most important thing um, it was the fact that during the cast process, I, wanted, I really wanted to, to have, um, yes, non-professional actors, but writers, um, uh, because I, I wanted to to catch um, the soul of uh, this universe, you know. So it was really important that uh, the actors uh, was also uh, really focused on his this passion uh, of writing. With the cast director Julie Allion, we worked a lot um, during a long period, like maybe it was uh, two months finding all the the writers for for uh, to build the crew of the of the film and it was an amazing experience because at this point as a filmmaker you you begin to um, to feel the truth of each character you know like um you choose faces and you you it it began really um, concrete and step by step you 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 find um way to yes to um, to build the stories with with this, those material you know and um to just before the shooting we had a really 
uh, long period, just rehearsing, um, improvising a lot of sequences of the film, um, but not the sequences of the film. It was sequences uh, set apart from the film, but they, they, deals in, they deal with, in a way with the film. Um, so and it began also with a lot of exercises, uh, uh, really focus on the bodies mm. um, to feel the energy, um, and to it was uh, we, I learned a lot with them, you know, because we were it it was a really collective way to to create uh, the um, the mythology of the film. Mm. Uh, we began to to know each other, you know, and we became uh, like a really strong family. Uh, it was um, quite an intense shooting, you know, so it was really important to to have strong uh, links, mm -hmm. connections. And with Antonia for uh, Yanis, uh, who plays uh, the role of Caïs, and for Ju Julia, who who. Um, for Julia, for Julie, who plays Julia in the film, uh, we had a special rears uh, time uh, in the north of uh, France. We we were like set apart from the world in a way. We we were really like an exile, you know, um, spending time also to focus on the body exercises and um, to to find. For for Ju for Julia, it was really important to find the rhythm, the rhythm of the body, how how she walks, how she yells, how she speaks, uh, which rhythm is it? Uh, and and with Antonia, Antonia she comes from theater performances and she is a dancer as well, so mm. she knew a lot uh, how to use uh, her body. Um, in an artistic way and a technical way of uh, approaching that, and 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 so she gave a lot of advices to to them a lot, and she was uh, she she they considered her as a, not as a teacher but as a a soul sister, you know, mm, like yeah. Uh, yeah. To it was uh, for for them. Um, it was really important to have Antonia on the set because yeah. she is a professional. And what was what was that experience like from your side, Antonia? Um, for me, it was really interesting because, as Lola said, he, he, they are really connected with in the uh, their reality with uh, the practice of uh, bike life. You know, so it was something that really belonged to them. Um, but what it was really interesting in terms of um, uh, fiction playing, it's it's like they, they would use their own experience as writers and put it in, in, um, in a real um, uh, fiction score. So for them, it was like, okay, we have to build with our experiences, our reality, something different as a character. So it was fiction between uh, us. And so I didn't feel like I, I was um, in a different place or space. Uh, and um, we they, they really managed to understand how to to use so the, the, this documentary part of their life uh, and uh, creating something like really uh, subjective, you know, 
because we wanted with the light was really important for us to not create like a, a group of riders that could be like a, a, a form with, without um, any, any any details any mm. uh, uh, specificities so it mm. was really important to to give them uh, autonomy as a character um so um after that rehearsal after giving uh, them tools mm. to improvise uh, we we managed to create um yes real fiction between us and uh, uh, everything were in a way allowed you know if you have just tuned in um i am speaking with the director and co-writer of rodeo lola kiveron and her co-writer and actor antonia buresi about their film rodeo She's currently playing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. I hadn't actually heard of these underground stunt bike communities before, but the film is wonderfully evocative and captures the liveliness and the poeticism of these stunts. Cinema has such a long history with being preoccupied with the body in movement, and these bikes often seem like extensions of the rider's body, mm. um, a strange kind of mixture of dancing and fighting, um, mm. and also terrifying but very beautiful to watch. Um, were there any accidents on set? Uh, uh, thank <laughs> you for your words because uh, yes, we can. Uh, it was really important to. It's really important you you feel that because it was um, the the main focus on, on mm. uh, of the mise en scène. But yeah, it was really intense, and we had um, several um, little accidents. But yeah, it was quite an intense um, shooting. We we began with. Actually, we began with the very first sequences of the script, which is really rare. And it was like a kind of hazard. Um, because um, uh, normally, with the economic um, process of shooting film, you uh, it could be... Um, Yes, it's it's difficult to imagine that you will begin with the very first scene of the of the script. But for that film, we began, and it was such a big week. Like, um, yes, it's the beginning of the film, so she runs all the time, mm -hmm. and then she has to to confront with the uh, the boys of the of the, this building uh, and it's all about movement all the time. The body is trapped and she moves and and she fights and. Um, so we, it, it was like a high level of violence. And um, at the beginning of the second wing of the shooting, uh, Julie, who plays Julia, uh, fell oh. down during the, the, the sequence of the accident. Right. Uh, yes. Wow. So she fell and she um, twisted her, um, how do you say Ankle? that? Yes. And at this point, we didn't um, know uh, if uh, it was um, like uh, really uh, dramatic or um, maybe she will be uh, operated in the, in the hospital. We, we didn't know. Uh, but unfortunately, it was not uh, a really big uh, injury. Um, so, but we we had like to stay two weeks without doing anything. So the the shooting were like in pause during two weeks, which is really long. Yeah. But at the same time, it produces um, a way to 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 build really strong connections with all the other actors, you know, 
and we began to 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 create this big family during this uh, quite a long period and 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 so yes it was a bad mood mm -hmm. like a bad vibration you know but at the same times we can felt that it was really good to to be together and maybe um the um, it was a kind of hazard that um uh, forced us just to make a pause because it was really violent and so intense and we we couldn't um go further in this uh in this way in, in this uh, really intense way you you know what i mean like uh, and and then we we had several accidents on the mm. shooting. Um, we had this this accident with the a stuntman because all the riders um, are actors in the movie, so they don't have um, a stuntman stuntman to to um, to, to yeah. double uh, them. Uh, so the yes, the riders just plays uh, their roles, you so know. That's, so that's all real? Yes. All, wow. All it's real. It's terrifying. Except, <laughs> except um, at the end, you 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 can see, uh, yes, there are sequences um, which are maybe more difficult to shoot because it's really technical and there are, there is a, a lot of danger as well. So we we had stuntmen, mm. uh, professional stuntmen, to to double uh, mm. the actors. And during one sequences, uh, during one second in the end, a stuntman fell fell down because mm. he was trying to do a wheeling, like the riders, <laughs> yeah. like challenging. <laughs> uh, but yeah. it's, uh, yes, he he fell and he destroyed uh, his uh, tibia, you know, oh, the, the leg. Yeah, uh, it was like uh, a mess. Oh, so cool. we stopped and then we 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 found a, solu a solution to uh, yes to lay to to shoot again the sequence. But it was really like uh, <laughs> a mess. It's a tremendous achievement because uh, it is really tense watching the stunts, but also, like I said, so thrilling. So I think you captured that really well. Sorry to hear about the accidents on set, though. Um, <laughs> but something I, I really want to talk with you about is, and I think it, this is one of the most powerful threads in the film for me, was the relationship between the two women. Um, so on one hand, we have Julia, who is a young, very streetwise, angry woman who has learned to protect herself uh, through these violent outbursts and, and scams as well. Then there's um, Ophelia, the wife of crime boss Domino, who has her own strategies of survival. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a wonderfully radical charge to the bond that these women create um, that for me spoke to the dangerous potential of women talking to other women. And this threat is acknowledged by a domino himself who tries to prevent them from meeting. Was this something that you always had in mind, this dynamic between the two women, or did it sort of develop as, as you went on in the film? Um, no, it was a really important point in the script. Uh, the script is a mixture of a lot of elements, you know, like... Um, I have the 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 subject, you know, the, the the special universe that I knew for many years now, and 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 I I we we have also the life experience, um, my life experience as a woman, my life experience as a lesbian woman, 
And with Antonia, we are a partner in life. Um, uh, we are lovers. <laughs> uh, and, and so we shared a lot of, um, in a political way, um, how to, 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 find for, to fight to, for our rights. Um, uh, and we, we shared a lot of um, political literature as well. Um, talking a lot about this subject, um, like um, um, our place in, in the society um, and how we can deal with that, uh, even if it's uh, really difficult and really um, tough. Um, so, yes, this part in this film is really influenced by... Um, our point of view, our um, way to see uh, the world as women and lesbian women. But at the same time, um, Julia and Ophelia, uh, they are building this really special relationship um, but it's not defined in the film. Mm. Um, I actually loved that it wasn't. I thought there was a real ambiguity really to that. It sort of seemed to go between almost mother-daughter exactly. um, lovers, potentially. They felt mm. like there was a sexual charge at times. Mm. Um, but then also just that humanity of shared experience of being a woman in the world, like you said, that, that really translates and, and wanting to help one another. Yes. Yeah. I wanted the relationship to be really opened. Because when it's uh, really open, you can find a, a horizon, you know, um, and you are not trapped in stereotypes, you are not trapped in a cliché, and you can feel that uh, you can be free. Mm. Uh, not defining, it's really important. I'm a non-binary person. I think, Antonia, you maybe would not uh, say <laughs> that to you, but you can feel this really... Um, political way to uh, undefine ourselves. Mm. Um, a lot of people ask me uh, what, what pronoun uh, mm. would I uh, use for to define myself. But I don't care. I, I care about political um, straight vision to trap me in a world that I, wa I don't want to live, uh, you know, like uh, stereotypes and uh, uh, determinism, bodies determinism. But in a way, my my own definition in, is is my soul. It's inside me, you know. I don't want people to have uh, rules on mm. me, you know. So doesn't matter which pronouns, um, she, he, they, them. Yeah, all those those pronouns are really cool to define myself. It's really important when you create uh, female characters to to work on the fact that. It's plural, you know. The humanity is plural. It's like, um, sorry, uh, fra fragmented. Uh, like it's um, a lot of parts. There are a lot of parts, and and that that is beautiful. Mm. And when you just focus on one part, it's uh, yes, it's a trap. It's mm. it's a bad trap. Like, uh, and you can't move. You and I wanted the film really focus on movement and. And it's like a chaos of movement because I hate to be, yes, to be trapped in the... Fixedness? Or fixedness, fixedness, yes. Mm. And the only, there is one shot, one fixed shot in the movie. And I don't, I won't, I won't reveal <laughs> this shot because it's really important. Mm. Um, but it's, yes, fixity, it's, it's death. Mm. And movement is life. What I think 
really interesting. It's not about uh, a theoretical way saying that the, the two characters, um, two representation of femininity, really uh, quite opposite, no? Mm. But what it's uh, the the way that they they manage to create a relationship, we are expecting something different, like they could not meet yes. in a way, and they manage to to uh, the contact between them a way to be more free to give um, tools one to the other to help in um, in the in independent and uh, autonomy uh, way and um, all the the stereotypes connect, connected to to related to Ophelia are, are completely yes, de- deconstructed Yeah. Yes, be- because we can feel, even if it's a really short evasion, when they go, the three of them, yes, I go, love that uh, scene. go with, with the motorbike, <laughs> yeah. even if it's a few, uh, it's few hours, yeah. we have the idea that something different is possible, no? Mm. And they can dream about something else, uh, putting all the um, uh, assignations and um, away. Yeah. So yes, for me, it's it, it, it it's really re- relevant about um, stigmatization and the representation of femininity, mm. the discontact between the two, even if their relationship cannot be defined, as Lola said. Yeah, yeah, I think mm. the radical other of mm. the of their relationship comes through so strongly in yeah. this film, and I think it's it's really a spectacular achievement. It has been such an honor. Uh, speaking with you both um, about this debut and I wish you the very best with the, the rest of the festival tour. Thank you, Thank you so much for joining me on Primal Screen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for all your questions, really interesting questions. Oh, yes, My pleasure. There is one more screening left of Rodeo for this Wednesday night so make sure you check it out for the full MIF program and to book your ticket head to myth.com.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. We're more than halfway through MIF, which kicked off earlier this month. The festival is a showcase of some of the best international and local features, documentaries, shorts, alongside talks and events. I'm joined now by the filmmaker and skater, Rick Janowski, whose film Warm Blood is one of the many being spotlighted in the festival. Welcome to Primal Screen, Rick. Thanks for having me, Flick. So Warm Blood is set in a very gritty and grungy 1980s California. And at the centre of this story, you have a teen runaway called Red, who's played by newcomer Haley Isaacson, who's recently been released from the psych ward and is trying to track down her wayward father. So, Rick, this is your feature-length directorial debut. You co-wrote the script with Melbourne-based filmmaker Emil Corton-Wilson, who I interviewed last week, as well as James Hewison, who many will know as the former head of film at Acme and the associate producer of Justin Kurzel's Nitram, which came out last year. You've got several short films to your name and cinematography credits for a number of documentaries. You're also one of the skaters in Gus Van Sant's 2007 film, Paranoid Park. Can you tell us how you first got into film? Skateboarding. (laughs) Yeah? Skateboarding. That's the easy answer. One word. Skateboarders have always been obsessed with coming home. I mean, if you were lucky enough back when we were kids, which was the 80s, early 90s, if you were lucky enough to know someone with a video camera and they came out to the ramp or wherever you went skating that day, like, you better believe you guys are going back to watch that, like, as soon as you could. Like, are your parents home? Can we come over? Like, just (laughs) barrel into the house, plug the thing in, and, like, magic. So we're obsessed with shooting 
and watch it. And then suddenly that evolves into like, let's get a shot of us walking up. And, you know, who who knows? Like you start to make videos. It was just natural. It makes so much sense, actually, when you say it like that. And I was talking um, to the director and an actor from Rodeo, which features a lot of stunts on motorcycles. And just that idea of learning through film, like where you're capturing skateboarding techniques and, and tricks, really, yeah. I suppose, and then being able to perfect it and also celebrate the, those moves and, the, and that kind of um, mastery as well. On Warm Blood, you're teaming up again with your producer, Cohen Buddy Nichols, who you worked with on Death Bowl to Downtown, uh, which featured at MIFF uh, back in 2008 and you've made heaps of DIY skate films in the late 90s and then you moved into documentary shorts and, and commercials where you're responsible for shooting the Super 8 sequences in Paranoid Park and I feel like Warm Blood is a really beautiful mashup of different media. There's news stories, you have crackling radio, there's photographs and even illustrations from Red's diary and you open the film by saying it's based on a true story. I'm curious to know how much of this material um, and the story line is true and and what parts have been fabricated the lines are really blurry there mm. um i had a lot of ideas okay so it started off with reading a book a journal that was written from someone who lived there in the 80s so it was like that was the first spark and then as soon as i started to do the research on the film it started to become personal and then as i started to interview more people and bring more people in then start to watch other movies because this whole thing was a learning process so it sort of evolved over time like I evolved as a filmmaker as I worked on it it took many years but everything influenced everything started to influence the the film to the point where I watch it now and I honestly don't know like there was a script that was loosely there was a script I think there was 13 versions of the script written oh, really? all wow. which just served as a loose guide mm. um and then once i got to the edit room that script i didn't even know i hadn't seen it for years like so the process of this film starting as an idea that was written on paper and then going more abstract and getting more personal and coming back together then involving mm. non-actors so to deal with non-actors as i learned in this situation was not to try to direct them too much was to just use them as characters in the film because I had a good relationship with them anyway as real people. So is that real? Is it acting? You know, mm. I asked my actress to write, you know, can we, can we, we did interviews and I talked to her about imaginary things that she had no idea about and she answered them and I asked her real questions. So she was answering questions with, I didn't know what was the truth and what was she was making up. Mm. The whole thing was just working with, um, working with some strange abstract idea of what was going on up here and then trying to put that into people but using their real life stories to connect mm. you know what i mean so yeah. like i don't know how to put it make it that clear but the short answer is the, the line between reality and like it's there is no it's somewhere in between i think yeah. the whole the film lives in sort of that middle ground certainly based on what happened while I was figuring out how to make the movie so based on actual events is also just a cool thing like <laughs> well, I mean cool. the thing if I'm looking for something to watch on Netflix or HBO yeah. or whatever it's just one of those <laughs> nights I just have no ideas I just in the search thing based on true story yeah I don't almost 
don't care what it is. I love based on true story movies. Yeah, me too. And I actually love the fact that that ambiguity plays out in a formal sense as well because you've got this mixture of news stories, um, which I'm guessing are fake, are they? Quick thing about the news. I lived in New York in late 90s, early 2000s, and I worked on sort of like the utility production crew on on with a satellite truck for doing news. Like, mm. um, I got into that because two good friends of mine, Buddy Nichols, the guy who I'm still a film partner with, and my friend John Veet. Um, we all lived together in New York City, and we all were friends, and we all worked on uh, new satellite trucks. You know, we're like punk, punk fucking skaters, you know. Like, we're going on news shoots, and we're, like, plugging everything in. And then we stand back for, like, okay, action. We're going live with, you know, Dorothy Hamill from Central Park. We're here to, you know, do some uh, Christmas dance and show some Christmas cookie frosting or some shit. We would be doing this stuff. And the whole time we would be standing behind the camera just, like, jabbing one another, just being like, Jesus Christ, like, TV is fucking weird. Like, this is somehow getting melted into news. Yes. Like, and where is the line of, like, what is this? Yeah. Um, So that was always a running joke with us. Um, So when it came down to making this film, that was something that I could set free and not have anything to do with, and I knew they had it. Um, So I called Want and our buddy John Veet in, who wrote all of the news. He wrote all of the news all of the radio, everything that you hear that appears on the radio or the television, he wrote, and we worked on that all together, all based on old jokes. Yeah, old right. absurd experiences <laughs> that we had on the ground. Buddy shot it. He's known Juan since they were since childhood, since like grade school, and we'd all known each other. So we just it was a familiarity and just sort of this absurd joke. And so John was going out and interviewing people, like real people, about real news stories that didn't happen. But the folks that were doing the answering thought they were... It had happened. Well, kind of in between, because we prompted them. We didn't want to be dishonest. You know, we weren't trying to mislead or be dishonest. But we sort of told them about the idea of what we were doing. Creating a news story about something that happened but didn't happen. But who's telling the truth? Are the cops hiding something? You know, we created this, and, and they just... You know, certain people really responded to that. Yeah. So it was really fun doing this fucking fake news yeah. thing um, and just nailing it. Like, my friend <laughs> is so good at doing that. So, they come across as so authentic. That's why I had to ask because the radio scripts, the the exact format of TV news, so on, on point. It's so accurately created. Mm-hmm. Yet there's this sort of dark comedy to it because there's bits where I was like, surely this isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't certain. No, but, you know, the story of the, the body next to the river, that's a real story. Almost everything, nice. even if it became uh, fictionalized or somehow got redone or went in this direction or direction, most of what I wrote, most of the scenarios or stories that come up in that thing that thing, the movie, come up in that movie, uh, are based on something I heard, a story I heard. And that's, so I would get these interviews with people, like on my research, and then I would sit with John, the news guy, I'd be like, dude, watch some of this stuff. So he would take that material and he would just start writing crazy shit. And yeah. I'd just be like, go. And he would just, I just think that, you know, the whole media, the whole media aspect in the film is so important. Yeah. Um, because it just, it just, drives the point a little deeper just just about the sort of the gray area what the fuck is happening in this movie what are they talking about who fucking cares it's really doesn't matter what Mm. matters is 
is we've created this world that I think everyone can relate to a little bit. It's a little bit, you know, absurd, and we turned up the volume a little bit on all of the, the shit. But I think everyone relates to that crazy news stuff. Yeah. And the mixed stories and what's real and what's not real. And, and Yeah, and I know that you've said it in the 80s, but there is some real resonance with contemporary news culture in terms of fake news and the artifice of TV news. I do want to talk a little bit more about your representation of the community that you have on screen. For listeners who have just tuned in, I am speaking with the director and co-writer of Warm Blood, Rick Chernosky. Rick, your film has been described as a raw, evocative portrait of an underseen American underclass, at once scuzzy and subversive, tender and lyrical. And I was reminded of uh, Sarah Smarsh's memoir, Heartland, which came out a few years ago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. But the subtitle of her her book reads, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth. And there is something quite radical about your portrayal of poverty and the cycles of crime and misbehaviour that surface in warm blood. And your decision to tell this story in film form which is so often associated with airbrushed glamour and fantasy, also seems quite provocative. Can you tell us about your own connection to these communities and narratives of poverty and what drew you to tell this particular story? Um, that's a super good question and there's a, lo- a lot to say about that. Um, it's a difficult... Well, if I would have thought about it, like it was, again, it was natural to me, but it's a diff- difficult story to tell without being... Well, spending shit tons of time without ex- being exploitative or taking advantage of it's it's something that I would not have been able to do without skateboarding, because skateboarding and the skateboarding that we do and the filmmaking, the documentation of that skateboarding, which is trespassing and mm. going into shitty places, we've been doing that our whole lives, and we're just so familiar with with that we're so mm. we're always in the worst part of town and we're always dealing with the cops or a dog or some guy coming out with a baseball bat or maybe just someone coming out with a weird warm six pack of some it's just the most fucked up shit always yeah you're an abandoned hotel you're an abandoned um backyard you're in the worst neighborhood in the world that just got is about to get like bulldozed to put up condos and now there's like tweakers and freaks and homeless kids living and then there's the perfect pool and it's a daily, you know, you just get used to this stuff and mm. you're there with cameras. So you're used to getting a perspective and involving like, okay, we're not, it's our skateboard films have always been about something that happened, you know, outside of just the act of skateboarding. So like, okay, well, we're this amazing location and this house is blown out and these people have a campfire and their dog is sleeping there and, and then they're skating in the background. So walk back here, get behind them and shoot through the broken glass and there's someone skating and suddenly you have a whole, it's so much more interesting. You know, yeah. we've always been, maybe it's because we're from the East Coast in California and, and we would go out there to skate pools and pools only exist in shitty, empty pools exist in shitty places, mostly. So we're coming from the East Coast and we're just kind of like, whoa, you know, like this is really different. Like, palm trees and sunshine and we're in Hollywood and this place is just fucked and there's fucking homeless people and there's drug it's like you just cannot believe the the up against one another ism mm. of that high and low you know and so that is something that we've always been a part of we've always had the camera out we've always talked to people what are you doing here what's going you know it's just always been a part of our trip so yeah. when it came to developing this story which was about I think someone who existed in that, maybe it was someone, 
you know, the characters in this film, now that I think about it, might have been someone living in one of those hotels or one of those cars that pulled by the pool one day and took off. And, oh, who was that weirdo? And who was that girl who got in? Like, this could have been a part of our trip. Yeah, yeah. So when I went out there to start filming and and, and just end up just getting the lay of the land of what this was going to be about, that stuff was, I was just out there doing it. You know, we were skating while we were doing research for the film. You know, we're interviewing people who lived in that, you know, most of those locations come from real places that we went to, to either skate or to interview people, or we ended up there to get some shade one day while we're drinking some beers while we were shooting and we ran into this guy. We just kept meeting people and kept trying to build this this list of locations and folks tell, talk to people. They tell me an interesting story. I jot to, hey, do you want to be in a movie? Come back the next week. You know, this went on for years. And that's how the whole thing got developed. It's really uh, beautiful because that authenticity of those exchanges and those experiences definitely does come through in the film and the final product. I'm really excited about the fact that, okay, we've talked a lot about Myth um, on the show, but I'm really excited about the fact that you've teamed up with a local film collective called Dog Milk Degustations and you're going to be presenting a special event and a screening program titled 25 Years of DIY Filmmaking hosted by Rick Janoski on Wednesday the 24th of August at Miscellanea from 6pm. Tell us about this collaboration. Tell us about the program. Okay, well, first of all, Dog Milk, I learned, well, two reasons. James, he was in uh, first and his kids are... The reason I know about dog milk, firstly, secondly, is a good friend of mine, Patty Hay, now a good friend of mine, Patty Hay, who James connected me with, um, ended up coming up to L.A. and working on Warm Blood quite a bit. Dog milk in, in this in this group of filmmakers are it's pretty it's pretty inspirational. It's pretty cool to see a young group of filmmakers getting together, forming a collective, and then not it, it it's almost. Uh, like the uh, Cinematheque, it's it's like Henri Langlois, the the um, the director of the Cinematheque in in Paris, like carrying creating this place that yeah. filmmakers can come and project films and get together in a sweaty room and and share their ideas and and that's sort of what these cats are doing. Yeah, like in their yeah. own way, the tradition carries on, right? It's like it's cool. It's just like another group of uh, and and so. They invited us to come down, and, and as long as we were here, they invited us in for the night to have the screen for a couple of hours to um, show our shit. Yeah. You know, and uh, Buddy and I, um, were, we met in the early 90s in Dallas, Texas, skateboarding, then met again like eight years later in New York City when we were both living there, started making films together, and that started in 1998. Um, so we have films and, and we still work together today. We still have the same studio. So do the math is 25 years <laughs> we've been doing Long this time. shit. Um, yeah. and so we have a lot of information. We've learned a lot. We have a lot to share. What if, um, can you give us a little taster of what, um, what we could expect at, at the screening of the program? Yeah. Um, so mostly, okay, we chose a selection of films, which is probably in the range of 25 or so short films. And the selections that we made are based on evolutions or think, think evolutions that we'd made through shooting that particular piece. There's a story connected to that that's worth telling. There's a film stock that we used or a camera that we used that has an interesting story to it. For the program, we chose films that had a story behind them. 
So that's one really cool thing. I have mm. I can talk for an hour about any one of those movies that we're going to show. Also, the subject matter is we tried to go as international as possible. So the films are from all over the world, and they're about I'd say ninety percent of the films are about people that are doing it themselves, creating yeah. their own realities, somehow um, off the grid, just making their own shit happen. And we happen to cross paths with them with cameras. And uh, it's mostly all on film. It's mostly 16 and Super 8. Oh, that's super exciting because it's exactly that kind of filmmaking that allows for a very different kind of story to be told. And I think that we do see that in your film, Warm Blood. There is, of course, a screening of Warm Blood happening right now at the Forum. And there also will be a QA and a afterwards with Rick, Emil Cotton-Wilson and James Hewison. And if you've missed tonight's screening and Q&A, don't worry because there is another one on Thursday. And like we said, Dog Milk Degustations are presenting this special event and screening, which I'm very excited about, called 25 Years of DIY Filmmaking, um, which is happening on Wednesday, the 24th of August at Miscellanea. Tickets are just $10 on the door and it starts at 6pm. Rick, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you thank you thank so you. much for coming on primal screen uh thanks for having me it's super cool to be on your show i appreciate it flick thanks for listening to primal screen a weekly radio show airing monday evenings on triple r hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the primal screen facebook page or the triple r website mm-hmm.